Welcome, alternative news listeners, and thank you for soul vaccination for getting my soul right. This is your community radio station, 91.7, and this is a pre-recorded broadcast on Saturday, May 9th, to be rebroadcasted Monday, May the 11th. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. This is our fourth post-COVID virus show, A New World, but the same place. And as we do before we go to all of our show content each week, we first go to war. Slipping into darkness 
Okay, so welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. First, I want to wish all mothers of the world a happy Mother's Day. I lost my mom last month and want to wish her a happy Mother's Day wherever she is. I think this next quote is consistent with my mom. It was from the Camp Casey days. It was on the last day. It was a closing night or evening of words being shared by various folks. And an elderly woman that I believe was an American Indian, indigenous woman, said, there is nothing more important than peace coming from the heart of a mother. And so, happy Mother's Day. In our pursuit for social justice, I begin tonight's show with some questions. Why is it that the dominant narratives disseminated by our major media on all the hotspot U.S. foreign policy initiatives in the world over the recent past consistently is at odds of what I have researched and discovered. Why is it that the governments of countries which empirically have been shown, documented on previous Bringing Light into Darkness programs, to provide its majority populations the greatest improvements in quality of life are the same governments we are so likely to oppose and seek to overthrow? Why is it that when dominant news presentations, whether it be from MSNBC, NPR, or Fox, or the New York Times, or Washington Post, present the reality of deteriorating conditions in governments we are supposed to dislike, such as Russia, Iran, Syria, Cuba, Venezuela? Why is it they rarely or never adequately explain the debilitating and destabilization strategies, including the power of U.S.-led sanctions that stunt the potential of these nations to deliver and improve the economic and health conditions to the majority population. This show is dedicated to exploring and sharing the history and context that is left out of the media-driven narratives that through repetition, rather than through evidence, provides false or unproven accusations and create image-making, a justification for the status quo. Last week's show detailed the wealth inequality levels from a worldwide basis, as well as the near-complete erosion of the middle class under both Democratic and Republican administrations over the last 40 years in our own country since 1980. Last week, we also laid out the simple truth that those who own the overwhelming majority of the wealth, the 1% or less, if you will, also own the ideas of the epic, of the time. The concentration of media control is only one example. I found this quote from a document. It's a blog from WebFX in November of 2016. WebFX is a full-service internet marketing company. Quote, while independent media outlets still exist, and there are a lot of them, the major outlets are almost all owned by these six conglomerates. To be clear, media in this context does not refer to just news outlets. It refers to any medium that controls the distribution of information. So here, quote-unquote media includes 24-hour news stations, newspapers, publishing houses, internet utilities, and even video game developers, end quote. So in this article, they show that the total value of the media's big six, when you add up all of their values, is $430 billion. National Amusements is $43 billion. It produces pre predominantly movies, but also owns CBS. 
Time Warner at some $60.6 billion, includes CNN, HBO, Hulu. And at the time of the publication of this back in 2016, it had not been subsumed by AT&T that bought Time Warner for, I think, around $80 billion. Anyhow, the third is Disney at $88.1 billion. And of course, they do the uh, television and film. They own the ABC and ABC News and ESPN. Comcast is the biggest at $148.2 billion. And it's one of the few remaining internet service providers in the United States. They also provide cable, TV, and phone services to residential and business consumers. In 2013, Comcast expanded into the entertainment by purchasing NBC. And then fifth is News Corp at $56 billion. Robert Murdoch, uh, News Corporation, is the media conglomerate best known for its Fox companies. Those include Fox News, FX, and pretty much every other company with the name Fox in it. The company generated more than $33 billion in 2012, and it controls a huge number of print products compared to other media conglomerates. And then the finally of the big six is Sony at $34.1 billion. But Sony is so much more than an electronics company. They have interests across almost all media industries. And Sony has a hand in dozens of television and cinema companies. Sony works in production distribution in just about every other phase of the television and film processes. So it makes sense that Sony owns media outlets in lots of countries, most notably in Japan and the United States. So I I share this information because when we think of media and the influence of, of the controlling of the environment of news information, that is not the only way that we are acculturated to believe in certain ways and in certain foundations. Movies that are produced, even sporting events, with their flyovers, do more than entertain and promote certain themes and promote certain assumptions. Anyhow, when a political economic system by its nature has inherent gross inequalities in order for it to maintain its unquestioned legitimacy in the midst of such profound unfairness, it must delegitimize all potential alternative political economic option models. There is no grand conspiracy in which a bunch of scheming, unethical conspirators meet secretly and call all the shots behind closed doors. Instead, the system itself, the political economic model itself, compels many good people to act in certain ways and encourages cutting corners and compromising ethical boundaries too often to gain advantage in the marketplace. For instance, if you don't do it yourself, someone else will in your particular market, and, they, and when they do that, their bottom line costs as a competitor go down, and they can undersell you and perhaps run you out of business. So anything that gets in the way of straight-out profiteering often gets compromised, such as environmental regulations, worker safety issues, living wage campaigns, affordable health care, Uh, etc. What we turn much of our focus tonight to is an example of the foreign policy connected to public relations deceit that is presently attacking Cuba's medical internationalist missions led by the State Department and Secretary of State Pompeo. This is not new, 
but it has reached accelerated levels by the Trump administration. The arguments that are given, disproportional news coverage, slant, are juxtaposed by those ignored by our major media over the Cuban issue through the eyes and direct experience of Nelson Mandela. We'll be listening to the actual words and his voice throughout the show. Nelson Mandela was victimized and led the fight against apartheid South Africa. He is recognized and exemplified in his own life, as most any reasonable person would agree, as having the highest ethical and principled qualities when it came to pursuit of truth and honesty. Therefore, in the sea of propaganda, where it often becomes difficult to know what version of the quote-unquote truth to trust, we examine the life and teaching perspective of Nelson Mandela. So let's first turn to a short overview of apartheid. This is a clip of a previous Bringing Light into Darkness program some years ago that does just that. I'm not so sure our listeners are so familiar with apartheid South Africa, but this is a period of time from 1948 to 1994, and the apartheid system was a system that allowed the, the domination of the black majority by a white minority, as most people probably know. The white minority government facilitated their domination by actually codifying into law various race laws. A system was created to label everyone black, white, or colored, and non-whites were restricted to certain areas, while blacks were not allowed to own any land considered restricted, uh, which included 80% of the land. There was, of course, like white-only bathrooms. You know, we're talking about up into the 1990s, right, in this world. Laws including prohibiting interracial marriage, sanctioning of white jobs only uh, occurred. All blacks had to carry a passbook containing a photograph and a fingerprint and information on accessing non-black areas. Blacks were then further separated in, into, quote-unquote, homelands, losing all their political rights, including voting in South African elections, which had the effect of de actually denationalizing millions of South Africans. They then would have to have their passport just to enter their own country, South Africa, from their homeland. Uh, they were basically made illegal aliens in their own country. Non-compliance was met with whippings, hangings, fines, and imprisonment. Africa, a continent rich in minerals and petroleum, should not be uh, as economically depressed and underdeveloped as it is today. And a lot of this history, of course, is connected to these tactics that Nelson Mandela took. It's emblematic of what happens in revolutionary expressions. Generally, they start off very peaceful, try to work within the system. That gets shut down. You get shut down. You get shot at, cut up, and killed, and imprisoned, and maimed, and all that stuff. And it elevates into higher forms of struggle. Something to keep in mind. Anyhow, what was particularly disturbing was the United States' role in supporting apartheid South Africa, and not just the United States, but also Great Britain and other Western nations. Why didn't we play a greater role in ending apartheid and its crime against humanity? Instead, we allowed our own New York City Chase Manhattan Bank to become a major loan asset to South Africa apartheid regime and did not discontinue business until they absolutely had to. While the rest of the world had already placed major boycotts on all South African products, the United States remained a loyal friend. Uh, in 1952, IBM began doing business. Okay, this is four years into apartheid. We said that apartheid period was from 1948 to 1994. In 1952, IBM began doing business with apartheid South Africa and continued throughout the whole apartheid period, making the U.S. the largest supplier of computers used in apartheid Africa in every part of the government which contributed to the control system known as, of course, apartheid. 
This allowed white South African government to create the computer-generated passbooks that allowed the tracking of millions of South Africans. Once apartheid ended in 1994, the United States provided little assistance to the new South African government to help them develop necessary skills to govern. It's ironic that JFK had remarked that, quote, we have lost ground in Africa because we have neglected and ignored the needs and aspirations of Africans. And just to make it real clear, because what we do in this country is we rewrite history all the time. And as uneducated historians, and I say that based on opinion polls that reflect totally off-the-wall perceptions of what goes on around the world, whether it's in Iraq or whatever else by the American people, uh, it's important to really recognize this possibility that what you hear is very far from the truth. And that's why it's so important to study this stuff on your own. But in 1981, uh, May 22nd of 1981, at the UN International Conference on Sanctions Against South Africa, Cuban official Jesus Montan condemns the April 30th, 1981 Security Council veto by Western powers of draft sanctions against South Africa for its illegal occupation of Namibia. The U.S. delegate, just a, uh, three months later in 81, uh, August 31st, vetoes a UN Security Council resolution to condemn South Africa for its latest invasion of Angola. So let it be very clear that apartheid South Africa could not have existed for some 40, 50 years without the United States. And let it also be known, and we're going to share some of this right after this break, that in fact Cuba, according to Nelson Mandela and many others, was instrumental, and Cuba played a decisive role in the words of, uh, of Nelson Mandela in the ultimate overthrow of apartheid uh, South Africa. Uh, anyhow, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. Again, you're listening to 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, and this is your host, Pedro Gattas. We'll be back after this. So apartheid is like the cultural expression of neocolonialism in that it unabashedly promoted the superiority of one race over another. And just real quickly, just because a country gets its independence does not make it free of the economic exploitation of larger, more powerful economic countries, which makes up the history of our contemporary world. So if countries don't vote in the right type of government through coup promotion or through proxy or funding mercenary armies or direct invasion, as we've seen in our recent history, governments can be put into place that become more subservient to interests of the, the neo-colonizers, of the neoliberal model that's being promoted by the U United States and the West. President George W. Bush described it well. You are either with us or against us. And God help you if you pick a path that we don't like. Anyhow, this ideology, this apartheid ideology, allowed for the subjugation of the majority by a small minority. The character of a nation is not what it says, but what it does on the foreign policy front, its actions. When it came to apartheid, the United States foreign policy was to enable apartheid, and by doing so, enabled the exploitation of Africa's immense mineral resources and at the inverse detriment for of the majority population by supporting such a racist government. We will see tonight how Cuba directly, from the earliest point in time, opposed apartheid. Before looking at how Cuba opposed it, we first turn our attention to how the United States supported apartheid and enabled the arrest and imprisonment of Mandela for 27 years for opposing it. 
So if you look at the UN record of the United States' participation relative to apartheid, it's striking what you find. The United States vetoed in 1979 a resolution that was calling for an end to all military and nuclear collaboration with the apartheid South Africa. There was a point in time where we were actually enabling a pathway for South Africa, this apartheid-led government, to get nuclear bomb capabilities. Two, we also should add the two UN vetoes in 1981 that were just reviewed in the last clip on apartheid regarding South Africa in Namibia and invading Angola. Thirdly, in 1982, 1982 condemns apartheid and calls for the cessation of economic aid to South Africa. There are four resolutions that were vetoed or inhibited by the U.S.-led West. Fourthly, in in, uh, February 20th, 1987, the United States and Britain vetoed Security Council resolution calling for binding sanctions against South Africa for its occupation of mineral-rich Namibia. The Los Angeles Times, in their article of March 12th of 87, share that Sweden, on that date, ordered an end to all trade with South Africa in one of the harshest actions so far by an industrialized nation against apartheid. The government said it was a unique deviation taken in frustration over the situation in South Africa and UN failure to impose mandatory international sanctions to force South Africa's government to end the apartheid system of racial segregation. The United States and Britain on February 20th, 1987, had vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for binding actions against South Africa. The ban also covers Southwest Africa or Namibia, the territory ruled by South Africa in violation of UN resolutions. April 1987, According to a UPI report that was published titled U.S.-Britain Veto South African Sanctions by Ivan Zivarina, that was on May 9th of 1987, the United States and Britain cast a double veto Thursday in the United Nations Security Council to block sanctions against South Africa for its occupation of mineral-rich Namibia, Southwest Africa, a former German colony, has been administered by South Africa since the end of World War I, almost 70 years ago. In 1965, the United Nations General Assembly voted UN jurisdiction over the territory and called it and named it Namibia. For 21 years, guerrillas of the Southwest Africa People's Organization, SWAPO, have waged a war against South African forces in Namibia. And this is apartheid South African forces. For the past 10 years, with the backing of Angolan and Cuban troops in neighboring Angola. In 1978, the Security Council adopted plan for UN-supervised elections in Namibia and independence, but South Africa insists that 40,000 Cuban troops in Angola must be withdrawn before the elections can be held. And then March 9th of 1988, the United States and Britain again veto a Security Council resolution. That one would have imposed an oil embargo and other sanctions against South Africa for its imposition of restrictions on 17 anti-apartheid groups. This New York Times article entitled U.S. and Britain Veto UN Move to Impose Penalties on Pretoria, March 9, 1988, I quote, the United States and Britain vetoed a Security Council today that would have imposed an oil embargo and other sanctions against South Africa 
for its imposition of restrictions on 17 anti-apartheid groups. So in that context, you can clearly see that time and time and time again, the United States did everything it could in order to allow and to enable the existence and the protracted existence of that apartheid period in South Africa. According to a Guardian May 15, 2016 article, an ex-CIA spy admitted through a tip that led to, that led to the Nelson Mandela's long imprisonment. Quote, a tip from a CIA spy to authorities in apartheid era South Africa led to Nelson Mandela's arrest, beginning the leader's 27 years behind bars. A report said Donald Rickard, a former U.S. vice counsel in Durban and CIA operative, told British film director John Irvin that he has been involved in Mandela's arrest back in 1962, which was seen as necessary because the Americans believed he was, quote, completely under the control of the Soviet Union, according to a report of the Sunday Times newspaper. Irvin's new film, Mandela's Gun, about the months before the anti-apartheid leader's arrest, is due to be screened at the Cannes Film Festival this week. The article read, Mandela was eventually freed from prison in 1990 and went on to become South Africa's president between 1994 and 1999 before dying in 2013 at the age of 95. Zizi Kadwa, the national spokesman of Mandela's ruling African National Congress party, the ANC, called the revelation a serious indictment. We always knew that there was collaboration between some Western countries and the apartheid regime, he said. He claimed that though the incident happened decades ago, the CIA is still interfering in South African politics. We have recently observed that there are efforts to undermine the democratically elected ANC government, he alleged they never stopped operating here. It is still happening now, the CIA collaborating with those who want regime change. Rickard, who was reportedly employed by the CIA uh, until 1978, died in March, two weeks after talking to Irvin, in the, the filmmaker in the United States. And of course, in March, they're talking about the date uh, of this piece that we mentioned. 2016. Anyhow, the CIA declined comment. With that, just wanted to capture the complicity of the United States supporting apartheid South Africa, a government that was close to conquering the whole southern cone of Africa, except for and because of what Nelson Mandela will see after the next break was Cuba intervention in Angola. So we'll come back to that topic after the break. So think about that. Think about all of the sanctions the United States has on all of these countries as we sit here today in 2020, yet we're very reluctant to sanction South Africa until the very end. And today, look at Saudi Arabia, the worst human rights violator in the world by far. No mention of sanctions. That points to the real motivation for which sanctions are for when it comes to the United States. And it's not political and democratic rights. Rather, it has to do with marketplace-driven objectives. We'll be back after this. This is the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP, KOOP.org, in the capital city of Austin, Texas. Back after this. <laughs> 